All right, everybody, good morning. We're going to get started. It's good to see you. We're going to begin in the book of Isaiah this morning. The book of Isaiah, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. This is going to be our call to worship this morning. The subtitle in the ESV says, The Lord is my strength and my song. And so let's center our hearts in this morning upon what the Lord has done and what He continues to do. Would you stand with us as we begin? It starts like this in verse 1. Let's read this together. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in our midst this morning is the Holy One, the One who is here with us as the people of God gather together. Listen, it's been the next few minutes lifting up His name, glorifying Him for all that He is. Oh Lord, our Lord, how wonderful Your name. of your love. Sing us again.
Spirit is my help. 
will fix my eyes on Jesus Christ. I'll say that it is well. Oh, I know that it is well. I'm fighting a battle that you already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. I don't know what you're doing, but I know.
Church, would you read this with me this morning as we're going through week by week, going through the New City Catechism. We're in week six this week. Our question is this. I'm going to read the question. Can we say this answer as it's on our screen? The question is, how can we glorify God? We glorify God by enjoying Him, loving Him, trusting Him, and by obeying His will commands and law Hebrews 13 speaks a little of this and we'll be here in a couple of weeks verses 15 and 16 where it says through him then through Jesus then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and it goes on in verse 16, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. God, and we tell this to our kids, but God wants to, us to obey in words, in our words, in our actions. And so we have the opportunity today to do both. As we continue to glorify him, let's do so with hearts that, while our hearts that um, our flesh is still mixed up in everything, but our spirit desires to glorify and serve and obey the Lord. And so what I want to do is I want to pray for us as we struggle through that today, as we do every day, that the Lord would shape our hearts more for his desires and his ways that we may obey him and glorify him in all things. Would you pray with me? Lord, we look at verses like this and catechism questions like this. Lord, and these are both encouraging but also discouraging at the same time because we see our inability to do these things within ourselves our inability to keep the law, our inability to love you as we should. But thank you, Lord, as we just sang that you have won the battle, you have won the war, and that we have the victory through Christ. And as we lean upon the finished work of Christ, that our worship is perfected and that it is a fragrant aroma to you because of who has gone before us, our great King and our Savior, the one who is worthy of our worship, the one who is worthy of us beholding him for all that he is. Jesus, we continue to worship this morning. 
Lord, and we, we acknowledge that you are the creator of all things, that you are seated high upon your throne, that you are high and lifted up, that there will never be anyone like you. Lord, and that our one response is to worship and adore you from now and for all eternity. Just any of his words. 
from your word in the Hebrews today do a work within us increase our faith increase our love our devotion we ask that you do what only you can do within us by the power of your spirit we ask this in the name of Jesus this morning. Kids can be dismissed as ages 7 through 10 today. Is that right? Ages 7 through 10 can be dismissed for Bibleville. I realized I told you Psalm 11. It's Psalm 111. I'm very sorry about that. He just got Psalm 11 put into the computer because I want to read Psalm 111. And I told him wrong. I wrote it down. It's all my fault. Uh, but we're going to read Psalm 111. If you have a Bible, turn there with me uh, before we stand. Um, because I, I very much want this to shape the way that you think about what it is we do here every week. Especially Psalm 111, verse 2. But we're going to read the whole psalm together. Psalm 111 says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. So that's what we've done. We've given thanks to the Lord prayerfully, wholeheartedly, and increasingly more so. Great are the works of the Lord. Studied by all who delight in them. If you delight in the works of the Lord, what is your response? You study them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered and the Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. 
He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. If you'd like to get a a handout there on the back table there, we can make extra copies if we need to. I've recently been reading books about the Revolutionary War. Uh, Now, for some of you, maybe that sounds incredibly boring and dull. Uh, It has been absolutely fascinating to me to study that revolutionary period. Uh, These these larger-than-life figures have a sense of fighting for a righteous cause as they perform deeds of heroism, daring, and perseverance. And I find myself, like as I read these uh, true narratives and accounts of, of real things that happened, I find myself asking often, uh, if only in a glancing way, would I have had that courage, devotion, if it were me? Like, would, would I have acted with the same amount of perseverance as George Washington? With the same amount of courage as George Washington? Would, would I have done that? And I, what I find is that these accounts, when I read these histories, they're unavoidably pushing, unavoidably pushing the question into my own lap. Will I learn from their example? In a more serious and eternal way, Hebrews 11 operates similarly. Now, let me be clear. This is not just an example of do what all these people did and you'll be good with God. That's just moralism. That's wrong. However, Paul clearly says multiple times in the New Testament, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. So there is, there is an example That Christ has left us that we ought to walk in even as he motivates all of our obedience. There is an example that we can follow in as much as these people in the Old Testament were believing God and pointing past themselves and all of their flaws and faults to someone greater. They're commending faith in their God to us and in as much as that's true... Hebrews 11 is going to push this question into our laps. Will we learn from their example of faith? Stand with me and let's read Hebrews chapter 11 verses 23 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, 
the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, great are your works. Our souls know it very well. We have read of your great works in your word and we who are your people have experienced your great works many times in our lives. May we study them even as we delight in them. And may the study of your great works cause us to delight in them all the more. Grant us the fear of you more than the fear of kings and nations and armies and people. And let it be our wisdom. Grow in us the fruit of your coming kingdom by your Holy Spirit. Through the teaching of your word, may we exalt Christ in our time together. And may it all redound to the glory of the Father. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Three points today, but one sentence. We're going to kind of move a couple of times through the whole text today. Um, And so the first thing, the first part, third of this sentence that I want to share with you is that these are accounts of ancient faith. Okay, And I'm going to emphasize the word faith because the word faith in Hebrews 11 is emphasized. These are accounts of ancient faith. Uh, The major point to be made here is that these Old Testament stories, which were true, which are actually narratives and accounts, these were indeed stories of faith. They're not triumphs of the human will or the human spirit, but they are triumphs of faith of the people of God in their God. That's the explanation for their notable deeds, and that is why we remember these people, because they were people of faith. They weren't great. Their God was great, and they believed in Him. That's what made them great, if we want to call them great. So the reason, so look at verse 23. The reason that Moses escaped the fate of all the other Israelite baby boys was faith. But it wasn't his faith. It was the faith of his parents. Faith removed their fear of the king's decree. Can I pause here for a minute? I didn't plan to talk about this, but I think we need to. Parents, your faith, your faith ought to train you not to fear the decrees of the king. So when any law is passed that seeks to usurp your authority as a parent to do your child good, According to what God's word says is their good, you're not to fear. You're to act in faith. This is what happened here. It was their faith that taught them not to fear the decree, the edict of the king, that all the Israelite baby boys be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. This evil, murderous decree. And we could make a pro-life argument here as well. That we're not to pray on the most vulnerable of, our, of us, but like I just want to press this home to parents. Your faith ought to cause you not to fear the edict of the king whenever it is issued. 
But, but their faith not only removed their fear of the king's edict, their faith also caused them to perceive their baby's role in God's plan. Now this is, Al Mohler is really helpful here. And he, he says, it says that he was beautiful. And if you look in Acts 7, the retelling there, the word is beautiful. If you look in, he, in uh, Exodus chapter uh, 1, you find out it was, he was beautiful. Like that's the word that's used. But there's, the, the word is not just describing the fact that he was a cute baby. What parent doesn't think their baby is cute? This is talking about their faith is training them to see that there's something extraordinary about this child. That he has a destined role in God's plan and they are to protect him. And so they assume the great risk of hiding him in their home. Rebelling against the king's decree. So their faith removed their fear of the king's decree, caused them to perceive their baby's role in God's plan, and compelled them to take the risk of hiding them, and then creatively preserving his life. Um, If you haven't read that story, what happens is they build an ark, a box. But the word is an ark. They build an ark. An ark, once again, saves God's people from from evil. That's just a theme in the Old Testament there. An ark saves God's family once again. So they creatively preserve his life by building a miniature ark and sending him down the river. He is raised in Pharaoh's house by his daughter. He kind of is this adopted grandson of Pharaoh. And, but then look what happens next. So Moses' faith was not only bound up in and tied to his parents' faith, it obviously became his own children. Children, you cannot stand on your parents' faith. It must become yours. It must. Thank God that he's given you parents that love you and that want to teach you the ways of the Lord, but you don't get into heaven just because your parents believe. You don't have a relationship with God just because your parents do. Your faith has to stand on its own. And Moses' did. It becomes his own. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, verse 25, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the reason that Moses repudiated Pharaoh's family and identified himself with God's family, even in their abuse, was faith. Faith trained him to judge the reproach of Christ. Now, isn't that interesting language? Because in the, in the book of Exodus, we don't see the reproach of Christ. So what's going on here? I think what's happening here is that our author is equating Moses' suffering with and for the people of God, he's saying that that was an anticipation of the coming of Christ who suffered with and for the people of God. The reproach of Christ, he, it says he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? what it says look at 26 because for he was looking to the reward
It is not a seen reward to which he was looking. We've learned at the beginning of Hebrews 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. His, the eyes of his heart is what Paul calls it. Those eyes were looking past the here and now, past the treasures of Egypt and the fleeting pleasures of sin to the reward. He endured, it says, verse 27, as seeing him who is invisible. So faith turns his gaze to the reward toward him who is invisible. It's faith. Like Faith is why Moses became Moses. Faith is why all of these things have happened. Faith motivated God's, uh, Moses to heed God's warning and keep the Passover so that Israel's firstborn sons might survive the night untouched by the destroyer. Keep reading that. Then you keep going into the story of the conquest of the land of Canaan. You, you read, in tw- uh, or, or actually first the Exodus, right? Faith allowed, verse 29, Israel to cross the Red Sea and their unbelief drowned their pursuers. So the Egyptians' unbelief was their undoing. And the Israelites walked through believing that God was going to hold those waters at bay and they walked through on dry land. Then you get to Jericho, the faith of those outside the wall to follow a crazy battle plan that's just marching, marching around the city, blowing the trumpets. They followed that battle plan by faith and it was that faith that caused the walls to crumble and grant them victory over the unbelievers on the other side of the wall. And, verse 31, it was faith that saved Rahab from the destruction of unfaithful Jericho. Now listen, let's talk about something stunning in Rahab's story here. So, whenever we study, not not necessarily we in this room, although probably in this room, but also just we Christians. When we study Rahab's story, we, we usually end up boiling it down to or somehow getting into an ethical discussion on the permissibility of lying. Or like it, it starts out as this really cool story and then it's like, well, but she lied and she was commended. So, so can we lie? Like, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that in the author's mind, in, when he, in Hebrews, when he's looking back on that story and he's just collecting a headline from the story. It is not, hey, can we lie or not? The headline of the story is, God knows the name of a prostitute in Jericho. That's the headline of the story. I want to show you, like, like boiling that story in all of its amazing, grace-filled, gospel, I'm, I'm thinking, trying to think of the word, Yes, but like thinking ahead, like looking ahead, foreshadowing, gospel foreshadowing in all of its gospel foreshadowing glory. When we boil it down to can we lie or not, that is the definition of missing the forest for the trees, right? Like don't let yourself go there. I want to show you something. I I would not ever do this unless I thought it was profitable for the people of God. Um, I'm going to show you a Greek sentence. Okay, so just bear with me because I'm going to tell you, watch it, looking at this Greek sentence this week caused me to worship. You can see 
what I wrote in the side of my, uh, of my interlinear New Testament there. So I'm going to read that. Uh, hey, porne. Yes, the word for prostitute is porne. And yes, that is where we get that other word from that you probably have in your mind right now. It is the root word of sexual immorality, porneia. Okay? This, is what, this was how she made her living and how she was known was Rahab the porne. Okay? It says, hey porne, u, not, she was destroyed with. Sunapoleto, uh, tois, apethasesin. Okay? The porne was not destroyed with the ones disobeying. Okay? Let that sink in for a second. Because I just think that that makes it a little starker than the prostitute wasn't destroyed. Like, it, I just think that we have an association with that word porne, and that's how she was known. And yet it's not how she was remembered. She was not destroyed with the ones having disobeyed. We all can agree that porneia, fornication, sexual immorality, it, in every form, however it exists, it is a grievous disobedience. If you don't believe that, if you disagree with that statement that porneia, sexual immorality, in any form is a grievous disobedience, you have a fundamental difference with the Bible. You just need to understand that. Okay? We all agree it's disobedient. But the porne did not perish with the disobedient. Is God lenient towards certain sins or certain sinners? No. Rahab was among the most disobedient in Jericho. Like I imagine, when I think about Jericho, bad as it was, she's, the, she's one of the worst of the worst. I, I believe that the prostitute was someone that even some of the more immoral people would look at to make themselves feel better. Okay? And then you think about, they probably had just about one of every kind there. And there were probably many people who were much better, much less disobedient, much less immoral than her who perished along with the disobedient. How did the porne not perish with the disobedient? Why? She believed in Israel's God. And that's it. That's it. Verse 31. Look, Hebrews, Hebrews eleven thirty-one. 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. By faith. She believed in Israel's God, committed herself to him, feared him more than anybody else in Jericho. And in that fear of the Lord, the beginning of which is wisdom, took on the immense risk of hiding and protecting Israelite spies. That is faith at work. As the hymn says, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. She was among the foulest. And God cleansed and preserved her by her faith. 
verse 31 reminds us that the headline of her story is not the ethics of lying, but that God is at work in the heart of a prostitute in Jericho. Her faith took hold of God's grace, and through his grace, this Gentile prostitute, follow me, was not only not destroyed, okay, that would have been gracious enough, but she ends up folded in, grafted in to the people of God so that she goes with them. And what's more, Matthew 1.5, she becomes part of Jesus' lineage. She's like a great-great-grandmother of David, King David, the man whose heart is after God, right? Like that guy. Are you amazed by the grace of God? You should be amazed at the grace of God. Like I, I believe that Greek sentence that I showed you is one of the most confounding and, and stunningly beautiful sentences in the Bible. The poor did not perish with the disobedient by faith. How much further evidence do you need to convince you of what I mentioned last week, that you are not so far gone that you cannot repent of your sins and believe in Christ? You have not outsinned God's ability to save. Jesus, Rahab's righteous descendant, was perfect, and he died in your place to redeem you from all your lawless deeds and to purify You, for himself. God's grace brings fornicators into the family of Jesus. Behold our God. Amen. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. How does it go? Freely bestowed on all who believe. By faith. All of these stories are ancient or accounts of ancient faith, forward looking faith, justifying faith. The second point we come to is there are all these accounts with one major contrast. These nine verses are distinct from the rest of Hebrews 11 because as you dig deeper into these verses, you find a contrast beginning to appear. It's a contrast of God's enemies versus God's people. Believers versus unbelievers, the righteous versus the wicked. So you see here two families, Pharaoh's family or God's family. In the first part, through 27 there. Or 28 maybe. You get the fleeting pleasures of sin marking Pharaoh's family. You get mistreatment marking God's family. You have the treasures of Egypt versus the reproach of Christ. You get fearing the king versus fearing and seeing him who is invisible. And starting with verse 28, you begin not only to see the differences in the present reality of these two families, but you actually begin to press deeper than that into and to consider the end, the the place toward which these two families are moving. 
in verse 28, you have the Passover lamb versus the firstborn being destroyed. God's family is saved by faith in putting the Passover lamb's blood on their doors. They're passed over. Those who do not, through their unbelief, their firstborn is destroyed. You have them walking on dry ground, the people's faiths preserving them through the water. And that water turns into judgment upon the enemies who don't believe. You have one of the inhabitants of Jericho being saved and preserved. And you have the rest of God's enemies being destroyed. And these are, these are small pictures, microcosms of the greater judgment that is coming. They show us a picture of the righteous judgment of God. Toward which all unbelievers are inexorably moving. And the salvation toward which God's believing people are inexorably moving. Humanity itself divides into one of these two families, these two realities. You either hear God's voice and harden your heart like Pharaoh, or you heed his voice in humble, believing obedience. You fear the king, or you fear him who is invisible. You pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin or you repudiate that family willing to suffer with God's people. You move toward reward or toward retribution. There is no middle ground. This contrast is here. It's biblical. These ancient stories of faith begin to cause us to look at the two destinies or fates or ends toward which these people, these two families are moving. And that, coming to point number three, that presses us toward discernment and decision. Discernment and decision. And I want to come at this by turning back to Psalm 73. So if you have if you have a, an outline, the, the entirety of the passage I'm going to read is on there. I've got it behind me as well, or you can turn there in your Bible. Psalm 73. When you turn to Psalm 73, the man who wrote this, his name is Asaph. And uh, he is struggling with the fact that the wicked prosper. And they're unconcerned about judgment. Uh, it appears to him that the fleeting pleasures of sin are actually maybe not such a bad way to live. That's why he's struggling. Because the men about whom we're going to read in just a moment, they oppress men, mock God, and they prosper. And he's really struggling with this. This is what he said. Look, look what it says. Psalm 73, verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 
when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Pause. Oppressing men, mocking God, and prospering, being happy. Does that not sound like America to you right there? But that's what's happening. Even in Israel, he sees this happening. We need to speak honestly about this. Um, Sin can be pleasurable. Like at times, the sin itself feels good. Boasting about yourself feels good. Because you're talking well of yourself and you're calling other people to think well of you. Boasting feels good. Gossip makes us feel good because we feel like others believe that we have the scoop. We're in the know. Immorality feels good. Like our, your body doesn't stop working just because you're using it for sin. Cheating can get you the grade that you want. Stealing can get you stuff for free. And you steal a television, it doesn't automatically break just because you stole it. There can be pleasure in it. The gluttonous consumption of food or alcohol can feel good. And on top of that, there's often a perverse thrill that sin has associated with it just because we're doing something forbidden. In a broken world, there are pleasures associated with sin. And the wicked can prosper, as we've seen. And sometimes it's actually through their sin that they prosper. Because the world is terribly broken. But they only prosper for a while. Because our author in Hebrews 11 calls the fleeting, uh, the, the pleasures of sin, he calls them fleeting, temporary, vanishing. The pleasure of sin that it affords is often fleeting. Ultimately fleeting. Invariably fleeting. There are times when the pleasures of sin cease in this life. Right? Think about it. We, we feel that there are times that we commit sin and we feel the cost in this life. Uh, you think about getting caught cheating and you fail your test. Maybe you flunk out of the class. Um, we can catch a disease through the immorality that we practice. We don't have friends who trust us anymore because we're gossips. We get put in jail for stealing. Alcoholism ruins our lives, ruins our jobs, tears our family apart. Gluttony can cause us, can cause us to end up with diabetes. I'm not telling you that every one who has diabetes is a glutton. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that gluttony over time can cause that. Sometimes we experience natural consequences of sin in this life, and in a limited way, sin's pleasure is shown to be fleeting. But even if that's not the case, this life is fleeting. So if you have only pleasure for the 80 years of your human existence in this world with no admixture of pain whatsoever, you will still die. And you can die surrounded by all of your toys and all of your friends and all of the pleasures. You can die in the pleasures of your sin and you will still die and it will be shown to be fleeting. Because you'll die in sin. The solemn truth is that nobody gets away with sin. Nobody. 
No sin goes unpunished. All pleasure from sin is fleeting in light of eternity. For unbelievers who die in or surrounded by the pleasures of their sin, all they have done is rack up an unpayable debt before God and they will bear the, pain, the painful condemnation of that sin forever. So even if the pleasure does not wear out in this life, the first moment in eternity will erase every ounce of that enjoyment as the fixed, unalterable reality of eternal pain and punishment sets in. Sin's pleasures will be shown to be cheap thrills. They're fleeting. And that's ultimately where our friend Asaph lands in Psalm 73 because it's a weary, verse 16, look with me again, it's a wearisome task. You start to read verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Where does he go? He goes to worship. He goes to the temple to worship. Then I discerned their end. That's one of the reasons I, did, I said discern, discern and decide, okay? I discerned their end. So store that away for a minute. Truly, you, God, set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Look at verse 13 again. He says, in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. But that was only when he was looking at what was happening in the present life with the wicked. When he stepped back, discerned their end, he finds out there is actually much to be gained. Godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul's going to say. Afterward, 24, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He goes to God's house. He deliberates. He discerns the end, the fate of the wicked. And he decides once again to set his hope exclusively on God. He recognizes the truth that sin's pleasure and the prospering of the wicked is fleeting. God always destroys the wicked. Nobody gets away with sin and he saves the righteous by their faith because they're righteous by faith. Righteousness by faith in Christ, let me be clear, is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It may cause you to suffer or be mistreated. It may mean you lose out on stuff or opportunities. But faith causes you to evaluate life and decisions from an eternal perspective. That misery, that pain, that mistreatment, or that missing out that we endure in this life is actually also fleeting. And our faith provides us an entrance into glory. Faith looks past the fleeting pleasures of sin and sees eternal rewards and pleasures in God's hand for his people. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Faith looks to the reward. I mean, there's a, there, Hebrews 11, 23 through 31 is pushing a choice toward every person in this room. Every person. Will you look to the pleasures that sin can offer that are fleeting? Because the reality is that through that, you can get some relief from the suffering that you endure now. From, from the threat of persecution. You can get out from under that if you pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin, but they're fleeting. The afflictions that you face in this life, Paul calls them what? Light and momentary, and they're producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. So you can have pleasure in this life and suffer in eternity, or you can suffer now with the people of God. You can look to the reward and you can receive the reward, namely God himself for eternity, in whose hand there are pleasures forevermore. Our author intends for the original hearers in Hebrews 11 to deliberate about enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin versus enduring the reproach of Christ. And interestingly enough, he's going to, when he says that Moses endured or, or considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, then what he's telling them, these, these Jewish believers, he's saying, look, when you believe in Christ, you're actually in solidarity with Moses. The Jews are going to tell you we have Moses, you don't. You just have Jesus. This guy is saying, no, when you endure the reproach of Christ, you have Moses because Moses was looking to Christ. But he wants them to discern the final eternal end of both ways of life. And after that, they must decide what to do. Will they turn back to Pharaoh's family filled with lavish, luxurious, comfortable, sinful, gluttonous, power-hungry, greedy, oppressive, and temporary pleasures? leading to eternal condemnation, or will they with Moses endure the reproach of Christ, holding fast to him, striving for his kingdom and his righteousness, bearing reproach, mockery, ostracism, scorn, and shame, but only in a fleeting way, and after that be received into glory? We must all choose. We must all discern and decide. If you need help seeing the true nature of sin and its destructive consequences look no further than the God-man hanging there on a cross, mocked, beaten, bruised, pierced, bleeding, and gasping for each ragged breath. Know that it was the fleeting pleasures of sin that put him there. Him who did not know the fleeting pleasures of sin. It put him there. And he gave up his life. And shall we say that he gave his life in order that we might better enjoy sin's fleeting pleasures? Shall we say that he died to affirm our sins rather than free us from them? Never. 
That is heresy. To say that Jesus died so that we might enjoy our sin. Jesus died so that we might enjoy God and glorify him forever. Jesus died for sin so that we might reckon ourselves dead to sin. We must make war on that which would destroy us and which cause Christ to suffer. So let us join him and endure his reproach, becoming like him in his suffering and death, that by any means possible we may attain the resurrection from the dead. So as we contemplate Hebrews 11, it pushes us toward a point of decision. Will you get some temporary relief by turning away from Christ and to the fleeting pleasures of sin and have it be bitter in the end? Or will you hold fast? Let the saints of the Old Testament, let them commend to you the worthiness of God. Hear them, hear them cheering you on. Hebrews 12. Hear these witnesses cheering you on. Saying to you, don't give up, don't make that terrible trade. Sin is never the answer to our problems. Faith and righteousness, righteousness that comes by faith, those are the answer. Look to the reward, see him, fear him who is unseen. Discern the end of God's enemies. Reckon the reproaches of Christ greater wealth than the pleasures and treasures even of America, not just Egypt. And resolve once more to maintain your hope in Christ. I pray that these accounts of ancient faith have encouraged you, but I also hope that you will respond with deliberation, discernment, and decision. You can turn away from Christ, follow your desires, pursue the fleeting pleasures of sin, and be destroyed. Or you hold fast to Christ, follow his word, pursue his kingdom, his righteousness, and know the eternal bliss and unmitigated joy of his presence in eternity future. May we decide well. Let's pray. Father, It is not in us naturally because of our sinful condition to choose a narrow way and a hard path. It is not in us naturally to choose mistreatment with the people of God. It is because of the fall naturally now within us to choose the fleeting pleasures of sin. And I am asking you to expose to us the true nature of sin that we might fight against it and every impulse toward it that arises within us for the glory of God, the good of our own souls and the good of our neighbors. God, help us to hold fast. If you should cause for us to suffer or be persecuted, if in your sovereign wisdom and your plan for us, we become a cultural minority that is ostracized and hated and put to shame, may we fight with every holy means to hold fast to Christ and to labor for the good even of those who would crucify Christ and would crucify us with him. 
Thank you that Jesus pled for the forgiveness even of the ones nailing him to the tree. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to fear him who is invisible, who has the power and authority to destroy body and soul in hell. Not just the king who can destroy our body. Fill us with faith. And let our faith issue forth into obedience. May we not harden our hearts to your voice, O God. This week as we're confronted with temptations to sin, and every one of us will be, I pray that you, Spirit of God, would bring to our mind bring to our remembrance the fact that any pleasure that I would derive from walking in this sin will be fleeting. And that to walk in this sin would actually align me with Pharaoh and the enemies of God more than Christ and the family of God. So Lord, may it be that as a result of our studying your wondrous works today, those in this room in fear of Christ in reverence for you Father in great faith that we would actually sin less this week as we set our hearts and our minds to choose to rather choose mistreatment and the reproach of Christ over the fleeting pleasures of sin over the wealth and treasures of everything around us God make it so for your people In the following moments, Lord, help us to lay down sin and to take up Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the table of the Lord this morning. It is a table that proclaims righteousness by faith. This table is for all sorts of sinners who believe in Jesus and who have been cleansed by him because of their faith. This table is not for people who are perfect. None of us could come if that were the case. This this is not only for people who've had a good week, and if you've had a bad week, you shouldn't come to the table. This table is open for any genuine blood-bought believer in Jesus who is willing and ready to repent of every known sin and to follow Christ in deeper obedience. If that describes you, you are welcome at the table. It's a table of faith. It's a table that someone like Rahab would be welcome at because of her faith. So weary, wounded sinner, come and find rest at the table of the Lord. Examine yourself in the moments that follow. Ask the Lord to search your heart so that you can repent and lay down your sins and come afresh in faith, deciding resolving to set your hope firmly and exclusively on Christ and Him alone. If that doesn't describe you, 
don't come to the table, if you're not a believer in Christ, you're not submitted to following Him as Lord, don't come to the table. You will be eating and drinking judgment, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, eating and drinking judgment on itself, guilty of the body and blood of Christ that could free you from your sin. You're like those who nailed him to the tree instead of those who are forgiven by his sacrifice. Take Jesus instead. Recognize the end toward which your life is moving and repent and believe in Jesus. If you want to pray with somebody, I'll be down front. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to point you to Christ. You respond this morning however the Lord leads, however he directs you. If you want to come pray, you pray. If you want to kneel in your chair and pray, pray. Examine yourself. Come, take and eat and drink in faith. As we gather at the table of the Lord, we remember that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we are sinners and yet justified saints. We, your people, who have repented and believed in Jesus. Thank you that that you don't blush at calling us saints. That you're not ashamed to be called our God. Thank you that you are transforming us from one degree of glory to the next. And God, I pray that this moment, now, you would do that work of transforming us as we seek to repent anew and believe anew. Spirit of God, have your way in your people. Convict us, compel us toward repentance, confession to believers if we need to, confession to others if we need to, and deepen our faith. Thank you for this holy moment that is purchased and upheld by Christ. It was my death to die. I am ready.
sacrificed we thank you that through Jesus you have effected a greater exodus than the parting of the Red Sea that you have made a way where there was no way you've led your people out of judgment and into your righteousness we thank you that you have given us a greater victory over sin and death than the battle of Jericho. Jesus, thank you that you are the Lamb of God who 
suffered and died in our place after living a perfect, righteous, law-fulfilling life in our place. Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive, ruling and reigning forever. And I pray that we would anticipate eagerly the return of Christ to make all things right and to bring us into glory. But in the meantime, we ask that you would continue to hold us by the right hand to lead us with your counsels. Thank you for the body and blood of Jesus, which the bread and the cup signify. Help our observance of the table to be fitting. In Jesus' name. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me let's drink he says for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes All right. um, we're going to watch one more video about the Georgia Barnett Missions Offering. This is the last Sunday that we're talking about. It's the last Sunday of September. Uh, it, you can still give. As a matter of fact, uh, I forgot to leave our check uh, last week, so we gave this week. You can still give this week. Uh, we're gonna watch a, a video about Go Louisiana. GOLA teams help small and rural churches reach children in their area through VBS. College students are chosen and trained from Baptist Collegiate Ministries across the state and assigned to churches for a one-week VBS. The coordinator came and had like a little booth and told us about it. And I went up to it and asked her what it was about. And she was like, these are the different Gola things. And then she said, are you interested in any of them? And I was like, I love VBS. VBS sounds fun. We found out about Gola um, from when my friend Kelly went a year prior. She would talk about how she was excited to go and she was doing all the preparation and stuff. But I never thought that that would be something for me. Um, one of my friends, Morgan, she uh, mentioned it to me. And ever since then, I was like, man, that sounds kind of fun. You know, I love kids and I work at a church with kids. Over 225 churches have hosted a GOLA VBS team since 2009. When GOLA does VBS, we go to a new church each week and um, we meet all the kids there. We do music with them, we dance with them, we watch them hate the dances until the very end. One of our first churches that we did, there was a little boy there and, well not little, he's like sixth grade, but we, he never really said it out loud, but we suspected that he didn't have the best home life. It was just such a blessing to be able to be like, 
hey, we have a perfect father that perfectly loves us unconditionally solely because we are his children. It was just really cool to see how that perspective of fatherhood changed for him. Over 15,000 children and workers have participated in GOLA VBS. More than 668 decisions have been recorded since 2009. Uh, my biggest hope is probably for me to impact them or say something that God is telling me to tell them and that it'll stick with them and that they'll know that God is there for them. My biggest hope for the kids that we worked with is just that they continue to grow and learn and actually have a relationship with the Lord because when, while I was growing up, I didn't really know we could have a relationship with the Lord. And once I did have that relationship, it changed my life completely. Your GBO gifts make it possible for college students to spend their summer sharing Jesus with children across the state. Let's spend just a moment praying uh, that the Lord would continue to work through those, those avenues as well as others that are supported by our Georgia Barnett gifts. Father, uh, thank you uh, for the way that uh, a large part of what it means to be Southern Baptist is um, that we cooperate for missions for the sake of uh, the name of Jesus being known uh, locally, statewide, nationally, and internationally, that this is what it's historically meant to be Southern Baptist, is that we have cooperated around missions. And so I pray that our gifts from our church, uh, however big or small they end up being, that they would be used and multiplied uh, so that the name of Christ goes forth and sounds in the ears uh, of, of countless people who, uh, who might come home repenting and trusting in Christ. Um, so thank you uh, for this. Please, uh, please show us what we ought to give and, uh, and help us to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Uh, the ability to still give to the Georgia Barnett offering is my first announcement as well. The second offering, uh, the second announcement that is, is that Wednesday night, September 27th, is men's gathering, 6.30 p.m. Do we know a location for that yet? Anybody? At Joel's house? Okay. I was gonna say, do you know the announcement? Do you know what we're having? No, you don't know. Joel's cooking. No, he's not. Uh, okay, so we're gonna be at Joel's house, which is uh, just off of the expressway in Pineville before you get to Kingsville. Uh, 6.30 on Wednesday night. Uh, there is a mandatory meeting for all parents participating in baby dedication at 10 a.m. next Sunday, October the 1st. Okay, mandatory meeting for all baby dedication participants, 10 a.m. Then October 28th is our fall festival. Uh, and where is Ronnie? Ronnie, can you remind me one more time what time that is? 2 p.m. Yes, we established last week that's a Saturday. Okay. Okay.
deal. All right. Does anybody else? I, I'm sure she has no iron. Uh, she has no dog in that fight, right? Um, anybody else have an announcement? All right. For speaking for all parents everywhere, we don't want none of that laffy taffy stuff. We want chocolate. So you know, go ahead, go to the store, get it. All right. Can you stand with us as we dismiss? I'm going to sing the chorus of this. I think Zach had mentioned it in the sermon, Grace, greater than our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. Can we just sing that chorus as our benediction today? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace.